everything in our economies, everything in our lifestyle really does ultimately come from nature. It's about where stuff comes from and what stuff is made from. Whatever you buy, keep it in circulation. Don't throw it in the bin. And once you switched and you're like building something sustainable, it's super cool. Nothing can stop you. Like uh, it's the new sexy. <laughs> Lauriane Meliere, welcome to Fashion Our Future. I'm your host, Lauriane Meliere, and in this first episode, we're going to get real and raw. Oh, nice sweater. Where does it come from? Usually when someone asks you that, you're likely to proudly answer with the name of your sweater's brand or say with a touch of Parisian nonchalance. All that, I found it in a local shop down the street. It's secondhand. If we pull up the thread, literally, of our clothes, we realize that they come from nature. Raw materials are the unprocessed fibers and textiles that make up our products. There are animal fibers, such as cashmere, wool, silk, or leather, and plant fibers, such as cotton, linen, or hemp. But even synthetic fibers are derived from petroleum. And guess what? Petroleum is found in soil. So if you think about it, fashion begins in the ground we walk on with agriculture and farmers who harvest the raw materials that will then be transformed to make our beloved clothes, bags and footwear. Now we're getting to the most interesting part. When we measure the environmental impact of all the steps that are necessary to make a garment, from the production and processing of raw materials, the manufacturing, the assembly, to the designing process, the transport, and of course, the packaging, the calculations show that it is the production and processing of raw materials that have the biggest impact on the environment. Okay, this was all a bit of a spoiler, and must confess, but I wanted you to have a few things in mind before I introduce you to my first two wonderful guests, Dr. Helen Crowley and Sanjayan. They are the kind of people who love nature so much as kids that they turn their passion into their work. With them, I wanted to really understand what's the link between fashion and nature, why is it important to care about raw materials, what kind of impact do they have, and what can we do to make things better. That's exactly what we will investigate in this first episode. Let's head to the UK, shall we? And listen to Dr. Helen Crowley. She started as a zoologist until she answered an intriguing job announcement from Caring. Conservation and ecosystem services specialist? And as the saying goes, the rest is history. Now she's at Pollination, a global investment advisory firm where she's leading the growth of their global climate advisory. But let's turn over the mic to her to learn more about her fascinating journey. So all I ever wanted to do was be a wildlife biologist. I just had a dream of sort of working in the Serengeti. I actually grew up in Tasmania, Australia, which is a very beautiful part of the world. But I sort of felt like I wanted to get out of there and go to Africa or somewhere and study 
lions and I just wanted to work on animals. What ended up happening is I went to Madagascar where I started working um, sort of as a wildlife biologist, but really got to realize that what I really wanted to do was work on conservation, which is a little different, right? It wasn't about just studying animals because I realized that you can't, it's not just about animals it's about the people as well, you know, and Madagascar is a very poor country and how do people live and we can still have animals and protect the environment. To make a long story short. It was a long journey. So now I work both with corporates and financial community and financial institutions to think, okay, how do we finance the change that we need to have happen? But ultimately, I'm a wildlife biologist that's been wandering through different things for the last 30 years trying to figure out new ways of helping animals and helping people. Helen understood a long time ago the intersection between nature and the industry. But what about the rest of us? What we're seeing now is all sorts of people are starting to talk about nature and biodiversity and trying to understand it in a different way. We all love it and love being in it. But now they're trying to understand the importance of it. And when you start looking to nature and understanding nature, I mean, nature is so powerful and can do so much good. You've given half a chance. So if we understand how we can really support nature to restore, regenerate, um, and we have the finance flows that helps do that, then we can really make the shift and change that we need to be living in a much more just, equitable, and thriving world. It's sort of this ultimate paradox is that nature has so much value, but it is not ever, you know, recognized in terms of our economic system and our financial paradigm. So, What, let, let me just step back up a bit because it's not just the financial institutions that can change and are starting to change and the flows of finance. It's, it's all of us acting in this sort of this society and this economic system. And I don't want to get too nerdy here, but let me just talk about three things that have happened in the last three, four years, right? One is that the world has acknowledged and recognized in a very profound way how fast we're losing nature and the services that nature provides. So not just species and genetic diversity and ecosystems, but all those services, the clean water, the clean air, the climate mitigation, the flood mitigation, all the things that we never value, well, we valued in some way, but we never really paid attention to, we're losing, right? So in, there was a big report, many reports came out in 2019 that really profoundly people went, hey, whoa, we are really losing a lot. You know, we're 80% of the populations of, of vertebrate species have have been lost in the last 50 years in my lifetime, you know, and people were starting. So that's one really important thing. The second really important thing that happened is that the climate community and all the policymakers and governments and people that have been talking about climate and had a, climate has had a lot of of focus, realized that nature is a big part of solving the climate crisis, right? Nature-based solutions, that happened. And then the third thing that happened was all the finance and economic, the people that think about the economy and the finance, the World Economic Forum, the Dasgupta report that was um, the UK Treasury did, said, hey, our 
economy is completely embedded in nature. We can't have an economy without this. And so, and you can say that half of the global GDP is moderately or highly dependent on nature, but the fact is our entire economy is dependent on it. So those three things came together and people sort of started sitting up and going, hey, we've got to do something about this. And that's what's happening now. So that's what makes this a hopeful and exciting time, even while we have a lot of things that are, are still very, very dire and challenging. We have this immense opportunity ahead of us. Okay, now that we have more context about nature, you may wonder, but what does it have to do with fashion? Well, here you go. I think that has been part of the, the, the adventure over the last few years is sort of understanding, okay, where does my business have an interface with nature? Well, like, what does nature mean to me as a business? I know what it means to me as an individual. I like going into the forest on the weekend, or I like taking my kids for hikes, or I like swimming in the ocean. So in, everyone individually says, I guess I sort of get nature. I love nature. But as a business, well, what do I do about it? Where does nature, where does nature fit in my, in the way I do business? So It comes back to supply chains. It comes back to where stuff comes from. And in, in fashion, not just luxury, but in apparel, textiles, across the board, and food as well. But let's just focus on fashion supply chains. It's about where stuff comes from and what stuff is made from. It's about where do those materials come from and how are those materials produced? That is the biggest part of the footprint of where you have an impact on nature. You might not think about that, but one of the things that Caring did with their Environment Profit and Loss account, which was really pioneering and is still quite remarkable. Little pause here. Helen talks about an open source tool developed by Caring that other brands can use to calculate their impact on the environment throughout the entire supply chain. We'll talk more in depth about that in episode two. But first, let's rewind just a bit and listen to what Helen has to say about it. But one of the things that Caring did with their Environment Profit and Loss account, which was really pioneering and is still quite remarkable, is it shows across a supply chain, you know, 70 plus percent of the impact that you have of that, the, the, it's mostly a negative impact, but 70 percent of your environmental impact is at where your materials are grown, produced, extracted, how you grow your cotton, how you grow your wool, where does your gold come from, where do your stones come from, how is that, because that is the interface, main interface with business, with, with nature, is how land is used, and the people that are involved in those in those enterprises. So it's really important to understand that. And then once you know that and you can see that, and this is across the board with uh, fashion supply chains, raw materials are really, really key. I mean, land use change is one of the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss. So if you could make a difference in the way you grow your cotton, the way you grow your wool, you can not only reduce your negative. And this is where it gets really fun and exciting. It's not just about doing less bad. You can actually do more good. You can restore the soil. You can bring back pollinator species. You can grow more trees. You can, And you can actually create positive outcomes by doing things differently where your materials come from. And this is just, and it's just a really huge opportunity. So understanding where the fabrics and fibers come from, where the materials, whether it's rubber, silk, 
cashmere, leather, and how can we shift that to being something that drives really good outcomes? How can we help those farmers and producers do things differently and support them so we can have these positive outcomes is the great opportunity. Helen touched a point that we are going to dig deeper later with Sanjayan, regenerative agriculture. But before we go further, it's important to understand one more thing about nature. It's a living thing. When we talk about nature, it just sort of seems like this, oh, there's just this thing out there, right? You know, you've got trees and rivers and mountains and that's sort of nature. Biodiversity, you've got to start getting a little bit more specific about understanding because biodiversity is living nature. Nature without biodiversity is just a mountain without biodiversity is just a pile of rocks, you know. Biodiversity is the living skin on the earth, right? And that's that's the important bit, right? It's the species, it's the ecosystems, it's the way those species interact with each other that give us the services that we we look to nature to provide. But nature, so biodiversity is the important part of nature, right? It's the living part and it's the pit, but we've got to start paying more attention to. So if you say, okay, I um, want to make a difference about the way my cotton's grown or the way my wool or cashmere's grown. How can I help biodiversity? What can I do? You know, And we talk about regenerative agriculture. So what does that mean for biodiversity? Well, it means that you're restoring the soils. And the reason soils have any functionality at all is because they're living. They're full of billions. A teaspoon of soil has billions of microorganisms and nematodes and fungi. And that's what makes soil function without biodiversity soil would just be dirt, right? It wouldn't be functioning and living, it's a living system. So you're already restoring that in regenerative systems. But then to your point, you've got to think about, well, who's walking across the landscape? Are there lions? Are there are there um, snow leopards in Mongolia and the Kashmir landscapes? Who are the pollinator species? What trees should be here? How do we start restoring that while we still have the production systems? Because ultimately that, you know, so while we still grow our cotton or herd our um, cashmere goats or what, how do we actually help support the biodiversity and bring that back? Not just the biodiversity that we want to get something out of, which is like the soil, because we want to grow stuff that, that we can then eat, wear or sell, um, but also the all the biodiversity around that makes that system work better. Okay, now we have a better understanding of the dependency of fashion on nature. And it is an intricate relationship, especially when it comes to the production and the transformation of raw materials to make our clothes. I'd like to go more in depth and understand what causes the deregulation of biodiversity. What are the solutions to preserve, protect and regenerate the soils to sustainably produce raw materials? Luckily, I got the help of Sanjayan, a nature lover, biodiversity expert, and my next guest. First, I asked him to tell us about his background, but also what nature means to him and to us. My name is uh, Sanjayan. I am a conservation scientist. I'm a geneticist by training. I was born in Sri Lanka. I grew up in Africa, East and West Africa. Came to the United States for graduate school and always been passionate about nature, always been passionate about wildlife and wild places and biodiversity, if you like. And I've been so lucky to have the ability to make a career out of my passion. And that's sort of what brought me 
to Conservation International. And for the last five years, I have been the CEO of Conservation International. I got into this because I just like wild things and wild places. Um, I have a place in Montana. and There are grizzly bears out there. And I like being out there because I like thinking that there's something bigger and more powerful than me that could take my head off. I like being in the ocean where there are huge ocean predators. But I know that I'm probably a minority in the world in the sense that, you know, that kind of love for nature isn't, isn't apparent to everyone. What I've come to realize in my own career in the 30 years I've been involved in conservation is that today, mostly because of our impact on nature, our negative impact on nature, it is very apparent that we all really do need nature. And I don't just mean for sort of spiritual sustenance or finding a place to go for a walk. That is hugely important. And I think people saw that during COVID. During the lockdown, the place that we yearned to go to was nature. But now I think the realization is hitting us front and center that everything, like, look, I'm sitting on a wooden desk. I'm sitting on a wooden chair. You know, what I'm wearing is cotton mostly. You know, everything around me, I'm drinking a glass of water right here. Like, really, everything around me actually comes from nature. I think when, you know, if you're going back 100,000 years or even 1,000 years, I think people's connection to nature was very real. And they quite clearly understood that what they had out there and why it was important to their lives. I think today we've lost that connection. If you're like me, by now you just want to be somewhere in Montana, surrounded by grizzly bears. I can't make that happen, but let's try something here. What about you close your eyes and take a minute to breathe and just picture yourself being out there. I hope you enjoyed that little pose. Now, let's get back to Sanjayan. Just like Helen, he observed a shift in the way we considered nature and the dependency we have on it. So the first part of conservation is understanding that everything in our economies, everything in our lifestyle, really does ultimately come from nature. And the vast majority of people in the tropics directly depend on nature to meet at least one basic need. So basic need is like water, right, or food. And according to the World Economic Forum, so go to the Davos, which is sort of on the almost the other end of the spectrum, and ask, you know, what do, what do their studies show? Their studies show that at least 50% of the global GDP is currently threatened by nature loss. I think it's more like 100% of the GDP, but even thinking 50% and the enormous sum that, that entails is a, is a massive, massive realization. The big realization I have had is that even if all of our lights, all of our transportation, all of our energy needs, everything that you have around you instantly goes to green, instantly becomes renewable, we will still be screwed. We'll still be in trouble. We'll still not achieve the Paris Climate Agreement that the world agreed to. And you know why? It's because of our destruction of nature. So it turns out that our destruction of nature through bad land use practice, through deforestation, through burning, through poor agricultural practices, all of that contributes about 12.5 gigatons of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere every year. 
to put that in perspective, if nature loss was a country, it would be just behind the United States and Canada, uh, China. So you'd have China as the biggest sort of overall emitter, followed by the United States, followed by loss of nature. That's why the work that we do today is no longer related to, you know, me trying to save a place that I love or a species that I care about. That's why the work we do today, I think, is fundamental to every job and every sector and every government out there because, A, it is so interlinked with our economy, and, B, it is the key to dealing with climate change. So we depend on nature and biodiversity, and our dependency creates its loss because we exploit it. <sighs> Talk about a vicious circle. Now, what's the solution, I wonder? The first answer could be in our science books. Do you remember that plants absorb carbon dioxide? That's the magic of nature. Let's hear what Senjayan has to say about it. So in strict terms, I think nature is a general term one uses for the outside. Um, you can bring nature into your house through house plants and fish tanks and things like that. But generally, you think of nature as what is outside. So a park, a city park could be considered nature just as a national park and a very remote protected area could be called nature. Biodiversity is a much more specific term. It is a term that tries to quantify the diversity and abundance of species. And so, you know, you do see the abundance and diversity increase in places that are typically unimpacted by humans. And in the tropics, you have very, very high diversity, biodiversity. You go to a tropical rainforest, it's like walking into a cathedral of life. You look up there, look around you, it's just dripping with life. All sorts of life forms, fungi, plants, insects, insects beyond belief, um, birds, mammals, etc. They're interrelated because I think most scientists find that when you reduce biodiversity, when you go into a forest, for example, and take out the species, it creates an unraveling of that ecosystem. So they're related, but the truth is if you take out biodiversity, you are unraveling nature. So nature is made of carbon. We are carbon life forms. If you, you know, like, I mean, remember the carbon that we burn in order to fuel our cars and planes and our life is old nature. It's trees from the carboniferous era, like hundreds of millions of years ago, you know, trees that have become fossilized that have turned into uh, coal or oil that we're now pumping out and then putting into the atmosphere. That's sort of black carbon. But there's also green carbon and maybe even blue carbon, which is the living carbon that is still on the planet, on the surface of the planet. So when you burn a tree, you know this, when you, when you, you know, light a fire or create a barbecue or put a log on your fire, what you're basically doing is taking carbon that has been stored by that plant and you're destroying it. You're burning it and putting the, much of that carbon into the atmosphere. And that's why the destruction of nature creates so much emissions, Um, it's not only carbon, but it's carbon dioxide, but carbon dioxide is the big one. When you dig the soil up, there's carbon trapped in that soil, and you turn it over, it dries out. As it dries out, that carbon dioxide is released. So nature is the only way we have today. This is an amazing thing. If you want to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, if you want to reduce greenhouse gases, the only mechanism we have today at scale that can do this and can do it for a very small amount of money is nature. 
Nature is the only way we can actually take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and trap it. And that's what plants do. You should walk outside and thank every tree you see because it is basically working for you. And frankly, it's been working for you for, for millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years for free. And I think it's time we help it a little bit and pay it back. Now, you get why it's important to fight against deforestation and the destruction of biodiversity. They play such an important part in capturing the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that is responsible for climate change. But what else can we do? Remember when we talked about regenerative agriculture with Helen? I asked Anjayan about a concrete example to help us understand why it takes so much time to implement. So if you think about all the things that we do to the planet that put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere from our, from our impact on nature, agriculture is the biggest slice of the pie. And it's an incredibly tricky one because we obviously need agriculture. We need it for the food we eat. We need it for the clothes we wear, for the fiber that we need. So agriculture is a hugely important thing to lift people out of rural poverty, to keep the world fed. But at the same time, it's contributing an enormous amount to carbon dioxide and the loss of biodiversity. A lot of agricultural front frontiers are in wild regions. Like most biodiversity has been lost on the planet because of agriculture not because people went out and hunted it. Because guess why? The places that are good for growing things also tend to be good for wildlife, right? That's the conflict. So how we change agricultural practices has to be front and center of our fight against climate change and the loss of biodiversity. And people think that the way to do it is not to do agriculture, because if you didn't do agriculture, humanity goes back to hunter-gatherer, you know, lifestyles of, you know, 200,000, 100,000 years ago, but really it is to do what we are now understanding as regenerative agriculture. Agriculture that is first and foremost has a low impact on land and water, but also then puts back biodiversity, puts back soil carbon. And the truth is that while this type of technique shows a lot of promise, there are not many scalable models. So it's almost like um, we have some great examples, but they're small. And so for us to really feed and clothe the planet at scale, we need a lot more of regenerative agriculture and we need it on a grand scale. More recently, um, with actually with the team from Caring, I got to go to South Africa and see one of our projects that are, are regenerative projects. And this is ranching. This is sheep ranching. So these are community herders who graze over very large landscapes, huge landscapes of grasslands. And they, their main product is sheep, which, which many companies need for wool. Now, the way they graze can be very detrimental or very positive for the environment. And so what we have done is worked with these communities to actually go back to traditional practice of grazing, changing the way they graze, where they graze, and how intensely they graze in order to actually add diversity to the soil and add uh, carbon to the soil. The ranching example I just told you about is in a very large scale. So now they're targeting, just in South Africa, you know, something like 700,000 hectares. So, you know, you can start seeing how you can actually influence a very large area Um, through changing the way in which people use it as a way of putting more into the system than taking out of it. Why? Why is it so difficult? Difficult? 
farmers are by nature conservative, and they have to be. You follow a practice, then you hope and wait. And so many other things happen between now and then. And then months later, sometimes years later, you get a reward. It's a really tricky thing. And that's why farming practices are often passed down generation by generation. You know, it's a very sort of innovation has to happen slowly because people's livelihoods depend on it. You try something, it doesn't work, you're starving that year. And that's no room for error, right? So it tends to be a bit more conservative. So new ideas tend to take a while. Second is we've had this huge push towards industrialization. And you, you know this, like in general, we've gone exactly the opposite. We've lost all our traditional practices. We have thought that they have been short-sighted. We have tried to scale and intensify. And one of the biggest and easiest ways we've done it is clear more and more and more land and then leave the old stuff behind. You go to Brazil today, you'll find enormous areas of land that have been cleared out of the Amazon rainforest and used for cattle ranching that are today only slightly productive. That needs to be restored because they've just used up the land in a very hard way. And so it's taken a while to do that. The other, the other challenge is that the access to markets. So remember that most companies aren't buying directly from a farmer. They're buying through middlemen. They're buying through cooperatives or some trade associations or that middle sector. Even Starbucks doesn't buy coffee directly from a farmer. Caring, as far as I know, doesn't buy directly from farmers. They're buying through, and, they, and they're doing that for a reason. They're doing it because they need assurance of quality and they need supply. Like, you know, you still need your coffee, and so you can't rely on one farmer in case something goes wrong. That makes it hard to reward those farmers who are trying to do the right thing. And that's where the work we're doing with Caring, for example, and this regenerative fund for agriculture is so important because it puts private philanthropy, private money into rewarding farmers who are trying to do the right thing. The idea behind is they scale enough, then the market can actually rely on it as a steady form of supply. There has to be more funding available for regenerative agriculture. I mean, this is a great fund, and now we have at least two partners, Inditex and Caring, who have put significant funding into it, not for their own benefit, but for the whole, to lift up the whole boat. But the, the food sector, the fashion sector, has to realize that this needs to be a pre-competitive thing. So this is not something where one company is doing it just to be ahead of everyone. The only way you're going to do this is if you can lift all boats because that's what you take to scale it. But that is also what companies need in order to have reliable supply. So that's first. The second is we need to reduce and remove bad agricultural subsidies. So one of the big things that is preventing regenerative agriculture from really taking off is we're pouring billions, quite literally billions of dollars on the other side of the equation, still subsidizing bad practices, growing the wrong things in the wrong way in the wrong places. And that has to stop. We think there's about $500 billion, $500 billion of subsidies that go into the economy right now that should be stopped that are all anti-biodiversity, really. So you have to balance that out. And that's good for governments. I mean, it reduces their, their burden if, if we can get subsidies out. And then the third thing is we need to figure out how to really incentivize or create new middle, you know, that middle piece. Because a small farmer growing 20 acres of coffee has to bring it somewhere. And then it all has to get gathered up and then finally sell, sold to a buyer. 
And if we can short circuit that process, maybe using blockchain technology, maybe by creating our own standards, our own cooperatives, then we have a better way to make sure the farmer on the ground is actually rewarded for the incentive, for, for trying something new, as opposed to right now, which I think the majority of the profits are taken out in the middle place. At the end of my conversation with Sanjayan, I couldn't help but ask him if he was hopeful for the future. Well, turns out it depends on which side of the world he's on. Oftentimes when I'm here in Washington, D.C., I get less hopeful. When I'm in conferences, I get less hopeful. But then I go to the field, like I, I literally just got back a week ago from seeing our work in the eastern cape of South Africa. This is in the Drakensberg Mountains, high montane grasslands, almost pastoral. Like you'd think that this was somewhere in Switzerland or Montana. You would never think this is in Africa, at least for my own brain. And I've spent a lot of time there. And you see these communities that have been farming and ranching here for a long time, and here sheep farming and some cattle, and they are willing to change their practice. I mean, they are really tuned in. In fact, some, in some ways, they're ahead of us. So you go there, you meet these people, you hear their stories, and you see how our fund is actually helping them make this trans transformation. It, you come back just fired up. It really is very, very inspiring. I mean, it's a beautiful landscape. There's falcons everywhere, there are waterfowl, ducks, birds, I mean, amazing wildlife. But the communities, you know, there's a farmer we met. I mean, you know, when I say farmer, I mean, he's a, he's a community guy. He lives out there, very remote village. You just picture this. And he came to this meeting with us and he said, when the soil prospers, we prosper. That's him getting regenerative agriculture. Without ever using that word, he got it. When the soil is healthy, they're going to ha have ultimately more money. I have this real belief, particularly with this nature piece, like how we turn the tide on it, that the solution for us is to go backwards in a weird way. But there's so, you know, think about how exquisite human communities must have been at managing and understanding nature. Because for hundreds of thousands of years, they were, they were completely dependent on it. Like our ability to be in a sort of a industrial society is, you know, a couple of hundred years old. And yet we have this enormous collective history that goes back 100,000 years plus about understanding and managing nature. And I think the lessons for our future are actually buried in our past. And every time I've gone into indigenous communities, I was just in Australia looking at how indigenous peoples manage fire and, you know, do fire on a big landscape or go to South Africa and see what the farmers, ranchers are doing there. I realized that the trick is to just tweak it just a bit in order to sort of get it into the system that we're currently in. It's really, really taking what the knowledge and the wisdom, I would say, that they have and then adding sort of a layer of, of sort of Western innovation, if you'd like. And I think it's in that mixing that the future really is there. And if we are going to change society, make the world a better place first, we have to change people. Time for a quick recap. We've learned that the interface between fashion and nature is raw materials. Their production and processing account for the most environmental impact. Because of land use, water use, air pollution, the chemicals used in the soil, among other things. Changing agricultural practices 
is one of the key actions that can have a direct impact on nature and biodiversity, especially regenerative agriculture. Now, how are brands and industry decision makers addressing the situation? That's what we'll investigate in episode two. We'll dig into how the industry can enact change by creating and upholding new standards. Exciting, right? <laughs> <laughs> 